Hi there, I'm Mark Carrigan, and this podcast is a theoretical audio diary, or perhaps the audio diary of a theorist. And I'm doing this as an experiment, really, and it's possible that I'll be so unhappy with what I'm recording right now that I might delete it. But I thought it would be interesting to give it a try. The purpose of it is to record my thinking on the pandemic as it develops. Um, not so much because I think there's some inherent value in my fringe thoughts, as C. Wright Mills would say, about the developing condition, but perhaps narcissistically as an experiment in intellectual production and personal techniques for it. And the reason why I think it's so challenging to think theoretically about the pandemic is because it's something so vast and world historical. It escapes easy characterization, even as we rely on our existing conceptual repertoires to characterize it. So, for example, there are literatures on accelerationism, platform capitalism, late modernity and social morphogenesis that have been a big part of my work for a long time now. And I think they're all relevant to making sense of the pandemic as a world historical event, but they're also inevitably partial. They can constrain our thinking, they can occlude certain aspects of what's going on to us. But conversely, we can't get to the truth just by triangulating between them. And I'm interested in this kind of predicament that we're in, where we have the conceptual tools we do. We need to understand how to pick them up and use them, or which ones we shouldn't try and use, which ones we have fallen into the habit of using that we should dispense with. And so in that sense, I'm hoping this will also be a reflection on the practice of social theory, on meta-theoretical questions. What is it to theorize? What is it to think abstractly? What purpose does it serve? Is it useful? And I'm someone who has this as my primary mode of intellectual engagement. In many ways, it's what I was trained to do, but I'm also often cautious about its utility. Uh, during the time I've been a social theorist, I've also worked as a digital practitioner. As some people listening to this might know, I do a lot of work with how digital media can be used for communicating scholarly ideas. And in the oscillation between the two, I've often felt very conflicted about theory. In some ways, I feel that I'm too practical for the theorists, but too theoretical for the practitioners. And so I'm hoping this joint experiment where I'm trying to do theoretical work with the podcast, or rather capture the preliminaries of theoretical work, but I'm also going to be reflecting on the audio diary as a form of intellectual practice can help bridge this gap to a certain extent. And the motivation for doing this came when, in the last few days, I re-listened to a podcast that myself and Jana Bacevich produced, The Isolation Pod, early on in the pandemic. And it was really great to hear how well it's aged. And in both our work, there are so obviously themes that entered into our discussion, which we're now pursuing. And it left me thinking about that kind of space to articulate the kind of half-formed ideas, the things that are developing in your mind. And following from the work of Charles Taylor, I'm a big believer in articulation. You know, we never get anything right in our articulation the first time we try. We have to say it again and again and again and reflect on what we've said and reflect on our frustrations or happiness with what we've said and try and use this process to iteratively come closer to where it is that we want to, to go. And as I might talk about in a future installment, I, I'm also very interested in what that destination point is. As someone who's largely convinced of many core postulates of critical realism, but also has a sensibility with regards to philosophy and social theory that was largely shaped by Richard Rorty. 
And I don't think there's a tension there, but I think there is an ambiguity that I've yet to explore in my own thinking, and it's one captured by this current theoretical predicament that we're in. One thing I am clear about, and this is what Jana and I talked about a lot in the isolation pod, is the danger of slightly facile hot takes, which were very common in the early stages of the crisis, which sought to explain what was going on in terms of a pre-established body of conceptual tools. And I think any attempt to capture the essence of the crisis, and there's a risk of straw man because some of the people writing these hot takes might very well say they weren't trying to capture the essence. But any attempt to provide answers, we might say, is something that can be quite dangerous in terms of or collectively coming to terms with the scale of the change the world is going through. And in the podcast, Jana and I explored this tendency and how it reflected the political economy of higher education, for instance, the capacity to accumulate academic capital by producing influential conceptual accounts of social change, but also the kind of soothing tendency of what Jana refers to as nosification. And as I understand this concept of her, she means the way in which we turn things into knowledge and what that means for our orientation towards them. Another element lurking in the background to my approach to this is a love-hate relationship with what Mike Savage has called epochal theorizing. So the work of Anthony Giddens and Sigmund Bauman on liquid and late modernity, this is what brought me into sociology in the first place as someone who was doing a master's degree in philosophy and had signed up for a, a PhD in political philosophy. I found their work intoxicating, the kind of panoramic perspective it offered on social change and its capacity to elucidate existential questions. Who am I? Who do I want to be? What is it to choose? What are the constraints on my choice? In terms of sweeping historical account of how the world was changing. And while I was fascinated by this, I spent a lot of my time since then, and this was on one level what my PhD was about, articulating why I think this is inadequate as sociology uh, for reasons that we can talk about in a future instalment. In the last few days, I've spent a lot of time listening to the... Uh, artist and performance poet Kate Tempest and a line of hers keeps coming back to me I don't have the answers but there are still things to say and I'm interested in this kind of liminal space of sense making finding workable abstractions which can help us begin to get a grasp on something which is ungraspable in its full contours and this involves a certain kind of what Rorty would call an ironic distance in relation to conceptualization, while resisting the relativistic tendency inherent in this. I think there are better or worse things we can say about the pandemic. And I think there are conceptual framings and elements of conceptual framings that are more or less helpful in saying non-trivial things about it. Which is where the title of this audio diary comes in. It's a line uh, from an interview with the philosopher Graham Harmon, who suggested that philosophy is less a matter of offering eternal truths and more a case of outflanking platitudes. And this is very much what I want to do here, to say non-platitudinous things about the polemic from the perspective of social, about the pandemic from the perspective of social theory. And I'm doing this mostly for my own benefit, though sharing it in case others find it useful. This is something that I used to blog for for a long time, but for a number of reasons, it's not really working as well as it once did. There's a fixity to text, which is inherently restrictive, and it's that kind of pre-fixed aspect of this that I want to explore. And so I want to use this audio diary as a way of improvising and freestyling in a way that I used to do quite a lot. 
I've been thinking back to uh, 2016 to 2018, where for a number of reasons, I was doing a very large number of public talks, uh, partly because I liked the lifestyle. And for a while, it was quite fun to spend half my time on the road going from place to place and doing talks. And partly out of necessity, when talking in public that frequently, I became very good at improvising, not in the sense that I get up with no idea what I wanted to say, but I'd use small cards and I'd write a few indicative phrases on each card, and then I'd stand up and I'd see what happened. And some of the talks overlap more than others. Some were radically different from the one that had come a few days before. But looking back on this, I found it astonishingly generative at the time. And a lot of the themes that have been key to my work from 2018 onwards, I've begun to realize were things that came up through that kind of improvisation. And the kind of practical flip side to that, I guess, is that writing has come to feel more time consuming to me now, I guess partly because of more pressures on my time. For the first time in my life, I'm, I've got a full-time academic post. I'm slightly concerned about the fact that it's a fixed-term contract and it ends, and the pressures of getting myself into a position where I can get a more secure academic job are weighing on my mind. And with a view to that, writing feels like a scarce commodity, something that I should expend in carefully instrumental fashion, at least until I establish the security that I want. But as well as this, I'm also interested in the oral character of social media beyond its textual forms. This is something I've been exploring recently through the post-pandemic university conferences, where we tried to flip the conference format, ask people to avoid PowerPoint, avoid monologuing, prepare blog posts in advance of a conference, and then have each conference session be a, a guided discussion with a chair who's more of an interviewer or facilitator. And I've become really interested in these kind of oral possibilities of working online but the dialogical side of it as well I recognize there's an inherent contradiction here because I've been monologuing for the last 10 minutes and although I expect if I continue with this audio diary it will mostly be me I think I do want to talk to people particularly people I see as my interlocutors so you know not people who I'm unfamiliar with and I'm interviewing them just because I like their books but the people who stimulate my thinking, the people who I share ideas with, the people who I have a kind of intellectual sociability with. And, you know, whereas the kind of professional network I'm embedded within is pretty large, less so since I deleted my personal Twitter account a year ago, but still pretty large, particularly for my career stage. You know, my intellectual interlocutors are a much smaller group. And I think it's interesting to think about what that means. And evidently in this case, I'm thinking about what that means for me. But I think there are questions of what that means for other people as well. And the value of those connections, the, the joy that can come from thinking together and developing ideas together, but also some of the difficulties as well. And I'm thinking about these things in part because I feel somewhat intellectually blocked at the moment in a very specific sort of way. It felt like it took a long time for my theoretical mind to boot up after the pandemic, partly because it was such a uncertain and surprising event and it's one which came at the end of a huge amount of disruption in the last academic year uh the two strike actions and then the pandemic and my experience of the early stages of the pandemic was driven i think in large part by the fact that i felt absolutely exhausted by the end of the third strike that i'd been on in two years 
And it took me a while to come to terms with the pandemic just because striking is tiring. And I particularly find the disruption to routine deeply unsettling. So I spent the last two weeks of the strike action fixating on the possibility that soon things would be go back to normal. And when the pandemic really began to bite, the realization that actually things would never go back to normal was personally quite difficult. And for a long time, I was processing that rather than trying to think about what it all means. Um, partly through my conversations with Jana Bacevic, um, you know, foremost amongst the interlocutors I value, I started to realize that I have things to say about this and I've begun to explore those and I'm getting quite excited about different programs of thought and writing that I want to pursue about the pandemic. But I also have a lot of outstanding commitments, which because I've struggled to work in a productive way, and I'm saying that with inverted commas over the course of this year, I, I've not made as much progress on as I want. And I feel a bit caught between these two aspects of my work, past commitments and where I want to go. And so I'm hoping this will help me manage that tension as I come to the end of these past commitments and can really throw myself into the writing I want to do. And so to bring this hopefully not interminable monologue to a close, there are three things I wanted to flag up at this stage. I'm interested in what the pandemic means for scholarship. In short, we've all become digital scholars overnight. And as someone who's been working in digital scholarship as a theorist and a practitioner for well over 10 years, this is a fascinating and challenging predicament. And I think there are huge problems posed by this for the university and for academic labor within it. But there are also opportunities to really craft the reflexive, effective public scholarship um, that is able to take advantage of commercial social media tools without being subordinated to their logic. And I'm interested in how we can make that work. I'm interested in what this means for civics, and I'm writing a paper at the moment uh, about the kind of civic challenge for education under these conditions. In essence, I'm thinking of the impact of sustained social distancing on associational life and the role that education and the social sciences can play in rebuilding it. Uh, I think I might choose this as the episode, as the topic for the next installment of the audio diary, because I'm still trying to work out a lot of disparate themes in my mind related to this. But I'm finding it a kind of rich thematic to play with, even if there's not enough consistency yet between the ideas that it's leading me towards. And finally, building on what I guess has been at the heart of my work since I moved to sociology, I'm interested in what this means for reflexivity, because I think COVID-19 is an example of what the realist social theorist Margaret Archer calls a reflexive imperative. It forces us to reflect actively on areas of our life that were previously governed by habit and routine. But it does so simultaneously, while in many ways the future is going to be foreclosed. And there's a really powerful piece by the political theorist Richard Seymour that I'll link to in the show notes about this. We're becoming hyper-reflexive by necessity, but we're also cast in amber. It's very hard to plan for the future when there is so much uncertainty. And this isn't a consequence of individual lives, it's a consequence of the broader social system in ways which I think are theoretically interesting, but also politically urgent. And I want to understand what this means for how we think about our life, how we orientate ourselves to the things we could do and the things we could be, and the many constraints on that process, in some cases which are relatively novel, as well as the manner in which this crisis has left the class structure of contemporary society 
so starkly exposed. And what this means for sociological thought, because I think there is a danger that a preoccupation of reflexivity could become individualistic. And I don't want it to be, but I do want to understand the contours of individual life under these conditions as a kind of micro foundation for understanding the broader pandemic. Well, this is already slightly longer than I expected it to be, because I thought at most people might be willing to listen to me monologue for 10 minutes. But I'm ultimately not doing this for the people. If you do find these audio diaries useful, then I'd love to hear from you or if there are any thoughts in them you'd like to chat about. You can email me on mark at markcarrigan.net. But equally, and I'm not sure where I'm going with this, which is the danger of improvising. But I hope there's been some use in this and I'm going to listen to it again and decide if I'm going to keep this.